0: Welcome to First Reading, the Old Testament lectionary podcast for lovers of the Hebrew Bible around the world. Today we have a party episode with all four hosts. Yay. Boop, boop. Yay. <laughs> what, what are we celebrating again? May. Uh, yeah, yeah, we're still in Epiphany. That's a celebration. Hey, it's, it's just always a celebration whenever right. uh, we're with you, dear listeners. Aww. I'm Dr. Tim McNinch
1: boop, boop, boop. from Christian Theological Seminary. And I'm Rachel Wren, Assistant Professor of Biblical Studies at Trinity Lutheran Seminary at Capital University.
2: And I'm Paul Essay, I'm a PhD student in Hebrew Bible at Yale University.
1: And I'm Rosie Canethol, a teaching fellow
3: for the Louisville Institute at Columbia Theological Seminary in Georgia. And folks, we are coming to you, as Tim said, on this fifth Sunday of Epiphany for our party episode. And our first reading is taken from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 21 through 31 but you might also hear a little bit about our other readings, which this week include Psalm chapter 147 and 1 Corinthians 9 and Mark 1. So folks, where do we want to head? I think most of us have thought about Isaiah 40, but where do you want to go Mm -hmm. with this?
0: What do you make of this being an epiphany text? Like, Mm. how does this fit into the liturgical moment, to use Rosie's phrase. I'm
1: so glad
3: you asked, Tim. Yes, because um, I did think about this, right? So we've been talking about year B and uh, the Davidic covenant and prophetic text that we'll be kind of running through uh, throughout year B as they are paired with Mark, our gospel for year B. And as Tim just told us, we are, yes, in the Kind of at the end of Epiphany. Next week, we're heading into Transfiguration. And then, if you can believe it, Lent, Holy Week, Easter. So, yeah, you got to (laughs) soak in Epiphany here because next week we're going to Transfiguration. So, as you think about what Isaiah 40 offers us in this last week as the church meditates on the revelation of God with us, the Emmanuel, I wonder Mm. if we can maybe think about that as we talk about Isaiah 40. What does Isaiah 40 offer us? in this last week of Epiphany.
1: Yeah. In some ways, I think this text is like the perfect last week of Epiphany text because it's, you know, Epiphany in Greek, epiphanes means like appearance, revelation, you know, and and this moment, this historical moment of Isaiah 40 is a huge revelation for the people of God in the change, the massive change that's about to happen in their political and just regular lives.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So we're jumping in in the in the middle of this chapter, right but we're this is part of the prophecy that begins back in verse one, right
1: right That's yeah, exactly so we're in yeah. you know of course we're in that moment you know f- friends if you're new listeners, Isaiah is one massive book, but scholars think that it is mostly divided up into three different chunks you've got the early mm-hmm. chunk in first isaiah isaiah one through thirty nine That's the 8th century prophet who was prophesying right around when Assyria was about to come and lay the smackdown on everybody. Mm -hmm. And then here, Isaiah 40 is, is a couple hundred, almost a couple hundred years later, and it's a completely different scenario. The people of God in Judah, the remaining kind of little bastion of God's people have been destroyed, not by the Assyrians, but by the Babylonians. They took everybody into exile. Well, most everybody, except the poor people who were left to tend the vineyards. And they just sat for 50 years wondering, what happened to our God? What happened to the promises? What is life like now that the temple is destroyed? And that was where God was. It's not just a place. It's not just like our church buildings. Like That was where Mm. God was on earth. So at this moment in Isaiah 40, the people have spent 50 years, almost an entire generation, sitting and wondering, what is life now in light of exile?
2: And I guess this is this is why the beginning of Isaiah 40, the words of comfort, like comfort, yeah. comfort, oh my people. This is why it becomes very instructional because, you know, this is such a very low moment in Israel, mm-hmm. Israel's history. And mm-hmm. to hear those words, this... Words of hope, rekindling belief in God and trust that something new is about to happen. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really, really uh, inspiring.
0: I guess. Yeah, yeah. I was a little disappointed to turn the page and see that we were in Isaiah again. I get a little burned <laughs> mm-hmm. out on Isaiah to be honest. It comes up so often in the lectionary, but then you start reading this, and it, there's there is something inspirational here, mm-hmm. right? It just even in yeah. English, it comes through. Just the yeah. it's a kind of soaring mm-hmm. poetry. Yeah and uh it it strikes me with the the tone of it what what do you all make of how it jumps off the page in
2: terms of its its attitude or tone Mm. Mm. i guess i guess for me the the use the frequent use of rhetorical questions to sort of evoke new thoughts Mm. right have you not heard do you know do you not know from the beginning like Who can be compared to our God? It's like all these lists of rhetorical questions to sort of get the people of Israel to think about the mighty works in the hand of God who is able to do this new thing that he's sort of nudging them towards that's that's a fascinating way of telling yeah, anybody reading through right. this is going to see all of
0: those questions really pop off the page and they're there in Hebrew right. even even stronger mm-hmm. in the Hebrew.
2: even
1: stronger right yeah. Yeah. Uh,
0: well, but th- that's not the only thing that questions can do right um, Rachel you right. you've done some work with question words. <laughs> what?
1: Yeah, well, and so that's, you know, I, that's where I really got hooked in this is is because my work, is, of course, has been in anger in the Bible. And one of the markers of anger in dialogue is questions, like barrages of questions. And I had never read this text that way. And coming to it, I was like, jeez, well, is is God mad? Uh, you know, and, and who is God mad at and and what's going on? So that led me, you know, spoiler alert, I don't think God is necessarily mad in this moment because there's other markers of anger that are missing. But the questions, like you said, Tim, especially in the Hebrew, are just mm-hmm. incessant. They are just over and over and over again. So that led me back to really follow up that question, like, why is God asking questions over and over again? Who is God talking to? And I and I think looking back at the literary context of this text, really, for me, helped me unlock it like what what is the key to this text as paul he said you know you start back at the comfort comfort you my people it starts with this very like tender gentle you know moment and and that's god speaking to the people of course but also speaking to the prophet and the voice cries out every valley shall be lifted up every mountain and hill may low the glory of the lord shall be revealed and right at that moment god sort of turns to the prophet and and invites them into this majesty into this soaring moment a voice says cry out and i said what shall i cry (laughs) like it's it the the prophet at this moment is the one who is forgive me friends but pissed like are you kidding me god you want to talk about glory and mountains and valleys people are grass And you know what happens to grass, God? Well, when you breathe on it, it burns up and withers Mm. away. So what do you want me to cry in that? Mm. Uh, It's a response of despair. You know, it's interesting that I I think what this sort of moment highlights is the fact that sometimes when you're in the midst of a really hard time and the the sort of salvation to that hard time comes along, you can kind of look at it and be like, so what? Show me your best. Like, <laughs> seriously, I've been here suffering this long and now you want to tell me comfort, comfort, like prove it. Um, so first of all, I just love that sort of like audacity of mm. the prophet to be like, prove it, God. Seriously, you're telling me mountains and hip valleys are going to be made low. Let's talk about that. Show me. Mm, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and, and I think God is inviting the prophet to say, preach the good news to the people. And the prophet's only response is what good news could be left in light of the exile. <laughs>
0: And then all that string of rhetorical questions yeah. erupts, right? Right. You know, just in talking about it right now, minutes. it reminds me so much of the end of Job.
3: Yeah. Yes, right? exactly. There's this like, yeah.
0: God, you need to show up and say something about all of this. And then God's, mm-hmm. okay, yeah, I will question you. Were you there when? Do you know yeah. this? Do you know that? And yeah. similar yeah, yeah. themes too, right? The the mm-hmm. presence of God as the as the creator, the one who contains and holds and supports everything in creation that's what's laid out here right as a yeah inspiration to to hope
1: yeah and i think even slightly um this one in isaiah is even more um tender, I think is the word mm. I would use in the one in Job. You know, the list of questions in Job are just like divine shouting almost, or divine ranting. These, these move. So I, mm. I kind of tracked them and, and starting in verse 12, they start with who questions mm-hmm. and those who questions, the response to them is all, well, God, mm-hmm. you know, who did, who um, has measured the waters? Well, God, uh, to whom will you would like God? Well, no one. And then there's a shift in verse 21, which is where our pericope begins, which is the, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you? Have you not understood? And it brings the focus and the attention directly back on the people and not only the people, but their knowledge. And then it Mm -hmm. answers it. Have you not known? He is the one who sits above the earth. He is the one who brings rulers to naught. to whom will you compare me? And then these little moments of kind of beauty, um, in verse 26, because he is great in strength, mighty in power, not one is missing. Mm. So instead of Job, where it's just like, everybody sit down and shut up, I'm going to tell you who's in charge, it's, I'm going to tell you who's in charge, and then I'm going to show you how I gather even the littlest and the least of those, that my Mm. massive might is for the purpose of those who are faint and who are weary. So do not be afraid.
2: There's something really interesting about the way the list of rhetorical questions are functioning here the kind of knowledge that's drawing the attention of the people onto right it's first of all the relationship between god and the natural world it's like you know it's god who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like the the grasshoppers and you know Hmm. he stretches out the heavens like a curtain and you know, it goes on and on. And I guess the question that I'm asking myself is how would these people know that God is able to do these mighty things? Mm-hmm. And I guess the thing that is drawing the attention to is observe the world and see the yeah. way the world order goes. And it is through that that you come to the knowledge that God is able to bring you this mighty thing. Right. Yeah. It's really- yeah.
3: So you're making me think of when Tim asked that first question, what is a whole bunch of questions? Like how do they work? To me, I was thinking of a direct examination in a courtroom, right? I mean, so you're trying to draw mm-hmm. out evidence. You're saying, you know, do you not know?
1: Nice. And so
3: when I hear the words that the prophet is saying to, who shall you compare me to? I think of the Song of the Sea. This is what Miriam and Moses also say. Yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, d- Mikomova.
3: Yeah, yeah. right? So yeah. who Mi-ka-mocha is like me? Li- so I... even in the question yeah. is the answer, right? Because you, you can hear right. the, the echo of the exodus, right? And so the like, kind of yeah. larger evidentiary yeah. argument that the prophet is nice. trying to make is, is like, this is the God of creation. Do you not think that the God of creation also holds all history in God's hands? Yeah. And so what has happened mm-hmm. to you is no accident. God has seen and God has a purpose in all of this. So to me, yeah. this opening address of 2nd Isaiah, is, is it's a shot across the brow. Like you have not even begun to understand yeah. your circumstance and that you remain chosen. It's an incredible yeah. kind of, mm-hmm. I mean, this is the reason why 2nd Isaiah is drawn upon for praise songs in the church throughout time, right? So, I mean, mm-hmm.
0: it's, yeah. just,
1: just the rhetoric sings. I love that, Rosie, you know, I remember one time we did an episode with Ethan Schwartz, and he said when the word nasa, to test, is used of God, it's it's a bad thing, like when mm-hmm. humans are testing God. Uh, but especially in the Pentateuch, when God is testing the people, what he's doing is trying to give them an experience, an embodied experience that leads to trust, and I, I think, yep. you know, when you were talking about those barrage of questions, how they're drawing out evidence. It's almost like God is is giving that experience to the people of of an embodied trust and kind of walking them through it. This is how you trust me. You know, when you're in a moment of despair, it takes it takes a lot to trust yeah. again. It takes a lot to hope again and it's almost like God's saying, this is how you do it. Come along. This is how mm-hmm. you do it.
0: Which I think is one of the ways that this string of rhetorical questions helps that. Because mm-hmm. the the power of the rhetorical questions is that all of this knowledge that inspires hope is not inaccessible. Yeah. If you were to mm-hmm. stop and reflect on this for a moment, you mm-hmm. could understand this too. Don't yeah. you know this? It's yeah. there for you to understand. Have you not heard? It's there for you to hear. Mm-hmm. Yeah. The prophet's saying, Hope is actually, if you think about it, low-hanging fruit here.
1: Yeah, yeah, That's right. right. <laughs> and, and I love the fact that this text is not um, it's not disnified, mm. like it, it says that God is saying, yes, there is good news in light of the exile. The good news is new life, but new life is not easy, and, and the divine one knows that. It, there t- will be times where you do faint and you are weary, and yet I created everything. And so in those moments, I have the power to sustain you.
2: Mm-hmm. The this, this sort of tension between being in despair or experiencing despair, and on the other hand, an invitation to hoping again, though, is, is, is a very difficult place to, to be, especially if you've been in despair for a very long time. So to be fair to the Israelites and the people in despair, it's like, this is this is a really hard space to be in and 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 to be like i mean just trying to be really transparent with myself here i probably will find it hard to see hope by observing the orders of the world and you know reflecting on the way things go and i think you know they were probably doing something as human as as possible
3: I think it's valuable too that you're acknowledging how hard it is like when you've come through something difficult. So for mm-hmm. preachers who are thinking about how to preach hope, uh it's valuable to see that the and to see that the prophet instructs us in some ways by acknowledging pain. You've yeah. paid double for your sins. Like you've you've gone yeah. through it and the world has seen it. And yet there's a message to be heard here. So, I mean, the the value is that the preacher doesn't give up, the prophet doesn't give up, uh, yeah. and neither does God, right? So that's the other thing is yeah. like, we, we mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. our waiting, there's a, a mutual sort of, well, what's next then, you know? So even with the, as Rachel kind of pointed out, you know, people are like grass, uh, and yet grass blooms a- again, right? Yeah. So with each season, nice. right? So t- to me, I think even in the prophet's reminder is that, It's a very fragile thing, but it comes back over and over again. There's a persistence to grass.
0: Nice. I was reflecting a little bit on the way that the prophet turns Mm -hmm. to creation as a a way to bring about this hope or to inspire this Mm -hmm. hope. And I just happened, coincidentally, last night to have been watching a webinar. It was like a book release party for a new book called Asian Feminist Biblical Interpretation, edited by Maggie Mm -hmm. Lowe just out hot off the presses, right? And they were talking for a a little while in there about one of the chapters written by Lily Fetelsana Apura on the Genesis creation stories. And I'm looking Mm -hmm. forward to reading that, but the approach that Lily takes there is identifying that in Genesis, in the creation stories, there are both uh, traditionally masculine and feminine characteristics in God as creator. And that caused me to reflect a little bit on... Uh, my own sort of knee-jerk response to creation imagery as reinforcing kind of traditionally masculine characteristics of power, dominance, control, whereas there's also an emphasis in drawing upon creation and evocation of God as caretaker of creation. And as I read through Isaiah 40 again, I felt like actually it was Mm -hmm. those aspects of God as creator that seem to be emphasized yeah. here. That that yeah. God cares for all yeah. of this, provides for all of this, and therefore will provide for you and care for you mm-hmm. as well, even though mm-hmm. you've been through the ringer. Mm-hmm. So that that idea of God as creator, as caretaker, seemed to be really strong here, and gets to that question that is asked near the end of our text verse 27 why do you say my way is hidden from the lord and my right is disregarded by god no god is able and ready to care for you just as god cares for all of creation
1: i think that's a great point especially because i think it draws attention to the building momentum of this text you know it starts small and moves bigger and bigger and bigger so that at the end of it you're expecting the apex the climax and the apex turns out that God will renew the strength of those who are weary. Like God's biggest, most massive act of creation is a caretaking one.
0: Mm, yeah. Mm. So let's talk about the end there. I know we all have some things to say about this waiting, hoping thing near the end there.
3: Yeah. So for me, this verb in Hebrew stuck out to me because I didn't recognize it at first. It's a hollow verb. It's a, got a vav in the middle, so kavah uh, for Wait.
0: This is verse 31, verse 31. Right? Those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord, yeah. Uh, and
3: I kind of sat with that because I was like, what does this w- word mean? And so I, I looked it up and I looked at that, the root, and what I saw in Brown Driver Briggs is that uh, kavah, like the root means bind together by twisting, which I thought was really an interesting way for me to think about waiting, that it was not a kind of a passive which is the way I think of when I when I think of it in English, mm-hmm. like it's just sort of a, a waiting. I don't do anything; I just sort of wait. But in the Hebrew, it's a call active par- participle here, and it's those who are not o- only just trusting, waiting, but binding together. So I've been kind of sitting with this idea that nice. it's a, it's a, a group, a community, and that even in the way mm-hmm. the verb is constructed, is that there's a sense of, of we are together in this, we are bound in our waiting. And that there is something we're doing. It's not a passive verb here. It's almost like we're binding ourselves to the mm. evidence that the questions elicited. We're binding ourselves to this mm. truth. And that's what waiting is.
1: Oh, it brings tears to my eyes. I just found it's- it so beautiful, too. Like. That's gorgeous. Uh, Because, you
3: know, I'm kind of going through it myself. I'm like, you know, preparing for my dissertation defense and I feel kind of like, where is God in all of this? I feel kind of abandoned and (laughs) sitting in this verse and then looking at the gospel and also thinking about this, you know, Mark one passage, uh, you know, which is it starts out with uh, Jesus is healing Simon Peter's Mm mother-in-law. And because of that healing, the whole countryside sort of shows up. But the gospel pericope doesn't end there. It then continues with Jesus right. goes off. You know, so everyone's looking for him, including Simon and his friends. And they're like, you know, where are you? Though? Everyone's looking for you. And Jesus says, we've got to move on from here. He's in this deserted place. But the verb, if you look in the NRSV, is it's translated as hunted, <laughs> hunted him. And I'm like, what is this Greek verb? <laughs> I look it up, and I'm like, huh, it's dioko, which is a verb that means to pursue, to make someone run. Uh, yeah. To try to, to literally, I mean, the NRSV does a good job of choosing the word hunt. It should, mm. it should stand out in a way. So in the law, if you use this word in that context, it's it's translated as prosecute or pursue an argument. And I'm like, huh. this mm. is the way that they're looking for Jesus? They're hunting <laughs> him. And <laughs> to me, when I put the, that verb in conversation with Kava, you know, in, in the call, nice. an active participle here, I think about like. Is this the way that we Mm -hmm. wait on God, that there is a there's a kind of a pursuit, a tracking down, you know, relentless kind of like we need you. Uh, Everyone's looking for you like I'm looking for you. Where have you been?
0: Mm. I would I would think that the probably the closest Hebrew biblical Hebrew word to that sense is probably darash mm-hmm, to search for yeah. which in is Psalm kind 20. of yeah. active seeking yeah and there yep. are places yeah. I happen to see as I was researching this that um, darash and this kava are nice. in parallel in poetry mm. nice. so I think I think you're right onto something there Rosie with the sense of this kind of waiting is an active at least edge of the seat waiting it's a expectant yeah. pursuing waiting.
1: Well, and and one of the reasons that I teared up Rosie when you said that is because you made the statement there's this binding tightening at its core and in my mind I went to like yeah because waiting is a really tense time and it's really hard and then you you jumped completely over that and you were like and so it's being bound to something and I was like oh my gosh that's such good news (laughs) you know and and how neat would it be that you know it's not just those who wait for the Lord but those who bind themselves to the Lord shall renew their strength they shall Mm -hmm. mount up with wings like eagles they shall run and not be weary they shall walk and not faint and of course this is plural and it's not you it's not him her it's they so it's that communal piece that you were talking about too it's just so beautiful
0: yeah the way the the word is inflected in the text is koye so Mm that's a plural participle Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so it's it's not just the the representative one who waits it's those together a community who waits on the lord will will renew their strength and if i can say one more thing about this verb because it is really fascinating right So you mentioned, Rosie, that it's a participle form. And I love Hebrew participles. (laughs) They're sort of my jam. They're all over this text.
1: They're all over it.
0: Yes, yes. And this participle is in construct with the name of God. Mm -hmm. So so this is using the participle as almost like a noun Mm -hmm. in construct. Mm -hmm. So these are waiters or hopers of Adonai. Yes. Right. So there's more here than a kind of um, do this action, get this outcome sort of equation. I think even in the way that the phrase is constructed, it's an invitation to take on that kind of hope or trust as a sort of residual identity. Right. A defining characteristic of this community. Adonai's hopers will renew their strength. Right. Nice. Which sounds a little odd in English, but I think that's mm-hmm. exactly what's happening in the Hebrew. We, we do that in English a lot, like um, reflecting on the New Testament, like uh, what if they kept talking followers. about, yeah, those who follow Jesus would be right. yeah. we just say followers or yeah. those that uh, disciple themselves you know, yeah. rather than disciples. Um, well, students, right? Mm-hmm. We, we don't talk about our students as just those people who study. It's a yeah. defining characteristic of that community in that context. And so I think even the Hopers hasn't really made it into colloquial English. Yeah, um, that's the invitation here to to be a hoper community.
1: Oof. Well, and that's right. and, and I think a, a hoper community. Yeah. I know I love that. And I think <laughs> you know again, just looking at the larger the larger context up until this point, if if I'm not mistaken. The subject of the participles has almost exclusively been God. God is the one who, God is the one who, God is the one who sits Mm -hmm. above the earth, brings the rulers to naught, blows upon them like they're nothing. Those are all participles. And then here at the very end, again, at that apex, it switches. And Mm -hmm. now the people Mm -hmm. are the participles, the ones who, the identity. Um, So Mm -hmm. it's almost like the entire chapter builds to rebuild that identity. And then at the very end, it sort of hands it over this is who you are. You are a hoper of the Lord, who renews their strength, who mounts up with wings like eagles, who runs and will not be weary, who walks and will not faint.
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was thinking thinking about the the, the verb waiting again. I, the only thing I wrote here in my notes is like hope two point It's mm, like yeah. next, <laughs> next, level. next next level, level hoping, yeah. right? <laughs> this is this is the way you guys describe it, and you know, go go dipping into the is All like really beautiful, but uh, I I also wrote here that it this kind of waiting um, involves uncertainty Mm -hmm. you know what pleases god about this kind of hoping process is is the commitment that it involves it it requires you to be sort of committed to the process in a Mm -hmm. certain way Mm -hmm. which is Mm -hmm. beyond just an expectation by knowledge but it is Tied in a way that is truly embodied and confirmed. Yeah. It's continued hope. Yeah, taking um, on that identity, owning yes. it. Yes.
1: And, and, and note that it. God doesn't just ask for it. You know, God's not just no. like, here's what I want you to do, do this. God creates this whole scenario, sort of embodies the people into this hope no. and then says, take up the mantle and run with it. You know, it's not right. a demanding God. It's an equipping, a caretaking, nurturing God.
2: Like, it's even much more beautiful and interesting, you know, if we think of it in in light of the three different things that follows in 31 which is like the wings of the eagle and running without being wary and walking without being tired like if we can do things that would naturally get us tired without being tired because of god's strength like how beautiful would that be you know this is i guess tied into the the entire migratory journey, exactly, right? Exactly. walking yes. and running. Because that's they what doing they're doing.
1: They're being called right? to return to the homeland, being and called. that's going to involve right. a heck of a long walk. And so, that's like, right. that's, yeah. the, that's the finale. The finale isn't that you're going to fly like an eagle, the fact is, you will walk and you will not faint. That's, that's the that. miracle.
0: Wow. And boy, could preachers take that towards the metaphorical journey so, of, of life, yeah. of faith. And of mm-hmm. the support that we receive from God through the weariness, yeah. well, we should probably turn towards pitfalls and angles
2: i mean I, I want to offer the concept of God giving power to the faint and strength to the powerless, which shows up again in verse twenty nine of of isaiah forty and and I think you know throughout all of. Prophetic literature, we we see the same concept of God being on the side of the faint and the side of the vulnerable and so on and so forth. And for me, that sort of idea gives both a warning to those in power, but also um, you know an encouraging word to those who don't have power. And for those in power, it's like God is coming after you, right? God is there's, there's something about the way you use power that you should watch because. God may not be pleased with that. And for those of you who don't have power, God is on your side, right? God is uh, working to give you power and, and to give you strength and to give you nice. uh, life because God is on your side. And I think there's something about that relationship that uh, preachers can con- con- consider offering as a preaching point or a preaching angle.
3: I think the pitfall that I always want to warn uh, preachers away from when they talk about hope and waiting is one that we've highlighted here is that this is not easy for people that have gone through things. And to acknowledge pain goes a long way to say that someone to actually acknowledge that you're going through a hard time. uh, I think that goes a long way. And that's what the prophet does here. Uh, And I think also, if you even look at the gospel, like Jesus does heal, before then going out to preach, right? So there's a, there's a demonstration of God's care, God's caretaking, that it isn't just about um, a command to hope, but a recognition that people are struggling. And I, you know I'm, I'm just looking at the time of the year, February 4th is when people often just kind of confront the fact that their New Year's resolutions are not coming true. Uh, <laughs> you know whatever it was that you had set is kind of like, okay, I've you know I've fallen down maybe. And when we think about the liturgy that's coming forward, like transfiguration, and then we're heading right into Lent, that's a long period of time for the church to then be kind of waiting through another difficult time walking with Jesus toward passion and crucifixion. So in some sense, if you're thinking about the kind of larger picture... Um, You know, I'd I'd worn away from just kind of giving a light idea of like the kind of easy praise and worship song, which is like, if you just trust in the Lord, you'll, you know, you're gonna get that strength. You know, that's what I want to pitfall and worn away from is like that. Just seems to me like a really empty way of looking at both, you know, the Isaiah 40 Mm -hmm. passage and the Gospel passage, which you know, the Markan community was under persecution. There's a reason why there are two endings. mark um so just to just kind of right right. yeah exactly (laughs) right to just kind of keep that in mind that it ends with fear and amazement and they just they don't they don't really know what's going on at the end of mark
0: maybe i would just add to that um i was also struck by the pitfall of an oversimplified pie in the sky sort of hope yeah and that's not the the flavor of the hope Mm -hmm. as we've talked about that's not really what's going on here in isaiah 40. The other sort of danger around preaching about hope is that, um, especially for those of us who have wealth and privilege and safety in the world, preaching (laughs) hope, it's tempting to make that an excuse to to close our eyes to the suffering around us, couching it as, you know, hope. Um, That doesn't do anybody any good, right? The hope that's talked about in this passage is meant as a resource for those who are themselves facing those challenges and are prone to suspect that God has turned away from them, this passage wants to say, no, God has not turned away from you. There is good news here. There is hope. And it recognizes the reality of the weariness yeah. and the suffering and the struggle. Yeah. And that hope comes in the midst of that. So it's not a denial of struggle and of suffering. And right. especially for those of us who, who walk through the world with a sort of power and privilege and safety, we need to keep our eyes open to that reality and not use hope as an excuse to turn our backs on those who need yeah. us. Yeah. So for those who are in the middle of the struggle, the hope that's talked about in this passage is a kind of expectation that can motivate those with needs to actually voice their needs. Not not mm-hmm. a sort of quietist, um, just be quiet and bear it, but a yeah. um, voice your needs. Take up the space that you deserve. Expect this kind of resource from God that God will come through for you. And Mm -hmm. so sometimes with passages like this, I preach sort of two sides of Mm -hmm. the application or preaching to two different audiences in the congregation or asking folks to consider the text in two different spheres of their lives. Mm -hmm. So I might say like where you are in need, these texts affirm that the one who cares for all of creation has you in mind and is working to restore you. So have hope, have trust, take on that identity as the hoping community, the hopers Mm -hmm. of Adonai, Mm -hmm. right? And on the flip side, where you have plenty, follow the model of God here as a caretaker and actually enter into partnership with God in the care of creation, right? Mm -hmm. Both Mm -hmm. in caring for the needs of our fellow humanity. And also I think there's a hint here of of an invitation to care for the non-human creation, Mm -hmm as well if we're um partnering with God in the uh creator identity that's brought mm-hmm. to the surface here. So mm-hmm. those are a couple angles I would I would take. What about you, Rachel?
1: Yeah, the thing that popped out to me as I dealt with the questions, the historical context and the literary context was this idea that new life is hard. Mm. <laughs> which is kind of a simplistic way to say it, but you know, the people have been in such despair Um, And I I think what this passage um, lifts up is that sometimes despair can be overwhelming. And Mm -hmm. what this passage offers is almost a barrage of hope, that sometimes Mm -hmm. it takes a barrage of hope to overcome overwhelming despair. And not to make that simplistic, not to say, so if you're depressed, all you need is a lot of hope. Like, no. (laughs) But I think just acknowledging the fact that, yes, there is good news in light of, of situations of exile, but new life is not easy. And yet the one who calls us into good life is the one who stretches the vast expanses of the universe. And so sometimes even when new life feels impossible, you know, it's, it's simplistic at times, but it's also just very simple that, you know, nothing is impossible with God.
2: I'm just, you know, really st- struck by the way you all describe what being hopeful actually looks like when you are experiencing despair right it's not clean cut it's messy it's full of questioning like you're asking questions and and you're wondering and and you're doubting God and you're 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 pushing back against God and you're questioning yourself and you know and that's messy place to be in also you know really involves the hoping process having hope in God does not necessarily mean that you are doing this really abstract and godly thing that pleases God in a really clean way right but you're actually at a place of mess yourself Mm. right and you're questioning so many things and I think being able to paint that out like helps because then people don't feel left out like you are hoping but you have questions you are waiting but you don't understand and you know and you don't you don't. Feel, you don't want to feel like my way of hoping is not like the godly biblical way, because the biblical way actually is even a, a messy. messy way yeah. In itself. You know? yeah. 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 Yep. Yep. There's a there's a
0: inherent gap. Anytime you mention hope or waiting, there's a gap there that's implied, right? I think the author yeah. of yeah. Hebrews might have something mm-hmm. to say about that. Yeah. That is that faith isn't about having everything lined up. It's about um, finding hope and trust in the midst of being unsure and not seeing and yeah Yeah. Uh, well that that seems like a great place to wrap up who would have thought that we would find so much (laughs) richness and depth in another dip into isaiah Isaiah 40 right again (laughs) (laughs) well folks that's going to bring us to the end of this episode but we'll be back next week with more tools and tips for preaching from the hebrew bible First Reading is produced by the four of us, and we keep all of our back episodes in a searchable feed on our website, firstreadingpodcast.com. You can interact with us there or find us on social media. If you want to help us nudge the omniscient algorithm, write us a quick review on Apple Podcasts. And if you really want to make our day, help sponsor this work with a donation or a merch purchase, which you can find on our website. Thank you all for spending this time with us. Until next time, I'm Tim. I'm Rachel. I'm Paul. And I'm Rosie. Happy preaching.